They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you to make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hadrites. Of being in India and seeing the plight of these women. 
that comes to us upset and then you do something to help. That's obviously way better than bottling out or lashing out. But ultimately, the most important thing that we need to do, even if we do channel it into a productive action, is that we need to take our pain and our heartache to the Lord. What we find in Psalm 83 is a cry out to God. It's coming from a heart of pain. It's crying out in anguish over a dire situation. In this prayer, there is both a lament over the hardship of the situation, and there's a crying out for God to bring judgment on the wicked. Honestly, I think that both of those things can be pretty difficult for us. Lament is heartbreaking, and many of us avoid that as much as we can. And what are we supposed to do with this call for a destruction of the wicked? Are we really supposed to pray that way? This morning I want to take the first portion of our time to look at Asaph's response, his two-part response to the wickedness that he saw around him. Then after that, I'm going to take the rest of our time to explore what our response to wickedness around us ought to be. Let me pray. God, I need your help this morning as I share from your word. God, I pray you would bring conviction of the truth to our hearts. Help us to know how to apply these things. Help us to understand what we're supposed to do when we have these deep experiences of pain and heartache. Verses 6 to 8 list them all out. 
the tents of Edom, and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, Gibal, and Ammon, and Amalek, and Philistia, and the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Allah. That's a crazy long list of people that are coming after them, isn't it? And from all I've been able to find and read, there isn't a single story in the Old Testament that incorporates all of those nations coming to attack them. Second Chronicles 20 is probably the closest, but even that's a smaller subset of these peoples that are listed here. They are being oppressed and opposed from all sides. These nations are conspiring together with the goal of exterminating Israel. They want to wipe them off the map. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more, they said. This is extreme. And sadly, the Jewish nation has faced this kind of hatred for much of their history. And even into modern day. We see most famously in World War II, but still today, some of Israel's neighbors will regularly declare that they want to destroy them. And Asaph makes clear, though, that these enemies that he is experiencing and seeing are ultimately not his enemies, but they're God's enemies. Israel may be the immediate target. But these nations, their real enemy is God. Asa repeatedly points this out in his lament. Because your enemies, they hate you, your people, your treasure points against you. Over and over again, he points out the reality that they're opposing God. And what these enemy nations want in the end, according to verse 2, what others have wanted before, they want the pastures of God. Asaph doesn't say they want our land. They want God's land. So though God's people are being opposed by these enemy nations, the reason that they are their enemies in the first place is because they're God's people. And those nations oppose God. And so because they oppose God, they oppose This is valuable for them to remember, but it really doesn't alleviate their circumstances. They're still facing these dangers. They are surrounded by nations that hate them. Those nations are creating an alliance in preparation for a war of annihilation against them. Because of that, Asaph cries out to God in the land. He is expressing their frustration and their pain. And he's taking their situation to God. But Asaph doesn't stop with mere lament. He moves on in verse 9 into asking God to bring judgment on the wickedness of these enemies. Actually, in verse 1, before he went into his lament, he started calling on God to act right? Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. So, even moving back to verse 1, he's telegraphing where he's going. But essentially, in verses 9 through 15, Asaph asks God to bring judgment on the wickedness of his enemies, like he had done in the past. And he points to a few different stories that we find in the book of Judges times where God had brought judgment 
9 and 10 references the deliverance of Israel from Jabin, a Canaanite king. That story is found in Judges 4. And that's the story where Jabin, in running away, uh, ends up hiding under a, a rug uh, in a woman's tent. And she kills him with a I won't go into the details of that story. Then in verse 11, Asaph references Gideon's battle against the Midianite king, against the Midianites uh, that we find in Judges 7 and 8. And that's the story where God had whittled uh, the Israeli army from 23,000 people all the way down to 300 men. And that 300 defeated the Midianite army with uh, the light of some torches and the sound of some trumpets and some breaking drums. These are crazy stories. In both of those stories that Asaph references, a lone woman and a tiny army take down powerful enemies. No wonder these stories come to mind as Asaph prays. Israel is facing an overwhelming enemy coming in at them from all sides. Like these past examples, they are desperate for God to act. They clearly can't do it by their own might. God is easily able to accomplish the task. And so Asaph cries out to God and says, basically, do it again, God. Do it like you did before. We need you. And Asaph doesn't ask for a partial or a temporary victory. He asked God to thoroughly defeat his enemies. I'm going to read some of this starting in verse 13. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flames set the mountains ablaze, so you may pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your word. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame. Verse 17, let them be put to shame and mistake forever. Let them perish in disgrace. This is intense. There are several different images here. Chaff is the light outer covering of a piece of grain. It's the waste portion. The farmer needed to separate it from the grain. To do that, they first begin to separate it. And then they toss it up in the breeze. And the wind would carry the chaff away and the heavier grain particles would fall back to Asaph asked God to blow his enemies away like a chaff, like dust in the wind. The imagery of a forest fire consuming his enemies, a violent storm or hurricane, and he ends by calling for shame and dismay and disgrace. So why does Asaph pray this way? Is he just like a nasty, bloodthirsty guy? There are three reasons, at least, that he prays for their destruction. The first reason is that wickedness demands judgment. Not because of us or our sensibilities, but because of God. And this is important for us to recognize. God is holy. And sin is an offense against him. All sin will be judged by God. Romans 
Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So when Asaph calls on God to bring judgment on sin, he's asking not to bring Asaph's flawed judgment, to bring God's own perfect judgment. Wickedness demands judgment. The second reason is for relief for the oppressed. This isn't exactly stated in the passage, but I'm confident that Asaph is motivated in part, if not largely, by his desire for relief for himself, for his family, for his nation. If God defeats his enemies, Israel will be delivered. If God doesn't, they will be destroyed. There's definitely a self-protective nature to this prayer. But that's not all. In fact, there's another reason, and it's the one that's clearly given to us in the passage, and that is that this judgment might provide revelation for the oppressor. And that revelation might lead them to seek God. Moments ago, I read the first half of verse 16, I wrote verse 17, but neither of those were the full sentences. So I want to reread those verses by starting at 16 and reading everything up through 18. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O God. Let them be put to shame and dismay forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. He said actually prays that this judgment would open their eyes of the oppressors to the glory of God. He asked that they would know that the Lord is God and that they would then seek Him. This is right in the middle of asking God to bring judgment on them. He's literally calling on God to curse His enemies and at the same time asking God to reveal Himself to those enemies. This is incredible. This isn't just the angry prayer of a scared Israelite. It's way more complex than that. He's actually asking that God reveal Himself to his enemies. The greatness and the glory of God is worthy to be seen and known by even God's enemies. Eventually, everyone will see that reality. Asaph prays here that they would see it now, that they would seek him. Alright, so I want to do two things today. Uh, the first is to talk about Asaph and his response, and the second where we're going now. Where does that leave us? What do we do with a passage like this? What should our response to wickedness be? Well, just as Asaph says, Oh God, do not keep silent. I want us to hear this morning, Oh Christian, do not keep silent. Like Asaph did in the face of wickedness, we need to turn to God in dependence. What are our other options anyway? Where else do people turn in the face of heartache and pain? Some turn to the government. Some turn inward to themselves, their own power, their own money, their own influence. Some turn to their neighbors, their friends. Some turn to social media and rant about it. The thing we really need to do is to turn to God. And like Asa, I think there are two things that 
in faith in your name. So the second response that we see in our passage that I want to encourage us to explore is that we would not keep silent. There is no other way around this situation than for you to take out this 
commandments first. If they refuse, then ask God to bring judgment so that we keep them from harming others. Remember several years ago when ISIS was beheading Christians and releasing videos of them online. I prayed that God would stop them. I prayed lots of ways that God might stop them. But most of them, I prayed that they would see the error in their ways. I prayed that God would visit them in, uh, in dreams and visions and reveal the wickedness of what they were doing. But in the end, I prayed something like that. There's no other way than to take them out. This needs to stop. So we see the wickedness around us, and there's something in this that goes, no, this has to end. The same reasons that Asa prayed for judgment, I think, can apply for us. We should pray for judgment because wickedness deserves judgment. It's the right response. The wages of sin is death. It's the right consequence for sin is death. Pray for judgment because it might bring relief to the oppressed. We want to see people not being harmed, killed, abused, whatever it is. We should pray for judgment because it might bring revelation of the glory of God to the oppressors. Oh, Christian, do not keep silent, but pray for the ending of wickedness. Pray for God's enemies to be stopped and pray that they might see the glory of God. And yes, when appropriate, cry out to God to bring this judgment on sin. All sin will experience judgment. That is the beauty of the cross. The wages of sin is death. My sin. God has brought his judgment on my sin. We can escape the judgment by coming to Him. He is our rescue. In the face of wickedness, it is right for us to lament. And in the face of wickedness, it is right for us to call to God for judgment for the sake of both the oppressed. Even when I pray, sometimes 